I kind of wanted to see him dance a little. I don't know about you. <laughs> My name's Jake Wood. I get the pleasure to serve on the teaching team, and uh, we're super excited. We're in a Christmas series called My Favorite Story, and um, we're going to jump right in. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 15, and just go ahead and stick your finger there. While you're turning there, uh, I do want to remind you, we have our Christmas Eve service coming up, and we have a ton of services um, that are... Uh, going to be available to everyone. And we want to encourage everyone to not just uh, come, obviously, but we think it's a great opportunity for you to invite a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. And so hopefully you've been praying about that and, and um, can invite them. Uh, what we do want to ask of you, though, one way that you can serve uh, maybe someone that's, that's never walked through the doors of a church before is open up your seat. And what I mean by that is uh, we're asking those that call Jubilee their family, if you could, uh, with your family on those Christmas Eve services, come to the 10 and 12 services, those early services, uh, that way we can make room for, for those that are coming in our more popular services, which is, which is more later. So uh, if that's something your family can do, man, it would be a great way to serve uh, some people that you may never meet, uh, except in heaven someday, right? Yeah. Okay, two people, that's all right. <laughs> we'll get there, we'll get there. Genesis chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 18, it's a little bit uh, of a story. Um, you might not think this is a Christmas story, but uh, hopefully we'll kind of land it right uh, back at the beginning again. So Genesis chapter 15, it's a story about Abram, and here's how it goes. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So this is before he becomes Abraham. This is before the Torah is given, the, the law, before anything, before the, the, the Jewish people are, are gathered together. Um, it all starts with Abram here, and, and this is what God says. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. Now, real quick, just before I continue reading, you gotta know what this means because we read this and kind of gloss over and go, okay, God says you're my shield and reward. You gotta realize the impact that this would have uh, been in Abram's life, hearing this from God. It would be like God saying, or someone walking up to you and saying, you just won the lottery, okay? This is the, the, the kind of statement that God is making. I am your reward. Like, you'll never want for anything else. Abram, I am your shield. And so Abram responds, he says, oh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, right? How am I going to be a great nation with no children? And, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, who wasn't his kid, it was just a servant in his house, right? And you don't want your, 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 this great promise to come out of a, a servant, like God is better than that, right? Well, Abraham said, Behold, you are, and Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came back to Abram and said this, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. That's a good promise, right? And he brought him outside and he said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. I love how he says it, if you're able to number them. <laughs> like, come on, we all know you can't. But <laughs> then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord, well, how will I know that I shall possess this land? And he said to him this, and this is kind of odd. This is a little strange of a request, but God says, well, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Just kidding. And a young pigeon. 
right? And no other instruction, right? He gives him no other instruction, but just go get this heifer and these animals. And, and so what does he do? He says, and he brought him all of these and he cut them in half <laughs> and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Remember that. We'll come back to that. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not their own and will be their servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. So this is, this is talking about the, the enslavement in Egypt, right? We all watched the Prince of Egypt, right? Okay. He's talking about this 400 years of, of, of being exiled uh, in the land of uh, Egypt here. But I will bring judgment on that nation uh, that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. How many want to be buried in a good old age? Yes. Three people. <laughs> wow, you guys are really alive today. <laughs> now, this is interesting, and we'll close with this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Would you pray with me? God, as we kind of look towards the Christmas story, sometimes it can become just rote. Sometimes it can uh, get lost in the shuffle. And God, today, I don't want to speak anything from this stage that isn't you. And so we just invite your Holy Spirit to be present. Because God, this isn't just a story. It's not just a narrative. God, it's your story. And it's your story with us. And so may we hear your heart today and connect with it, no matter how far we are. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. 1987 was probably my favorite Christmas memory. It's my favorite Christmas memory because our whole family was gathering together, except for one family. You see Pastor John with a mustache there, yeah. <laughs> um, we had all the grandkids, Pastor Terry, before his hair was gray there, yeah. I would say before he had hair, but he didn't have hair then, so... <laughs> But we, we, we're the same as you guys. You, you get together as the whole family. And the first priority is we take care of all the holy things first. We eat. <laughs> and we eat a lot. Does anyone else do that? Yes. We gather and we have fun. We talk. And then it comes time for Grandpa to sit down and read the Christmas story. And Pastor John uh, talked about how this was one of his favorite cherished memories. And uh, over time, it has become one of my cherished memories as I've grown old and have my own kids that are getting older. But I got to tell you, as a 10-year-old boy in 1987, sitting through the Christmas story is kind of like just waiting in line at the DMV, right? <laughs> like, just... Come on, are we going to get to the... I never want... I always wondered why we didn't do them after the presents, right? Because Maybe because you're just paying attention, and that's, that's the only time. But we're sitting there nervous, you know, just like, what are we going to get? What are we going to get? You're, you, all the expectation of Christmas. Well, 1987 was unique because, <laughs> I don't know about you, maybe it's a gift, an anointing, I don't know what it is, but I always seem to find my Christmas presents. Anyone else like this? I... Honestly, I'm not lying. I stumble on all my Christmas presents. And it was the same even back then in 1987. I had the 
couple days before Christmas Eve and we celebrated it, I had gone down in the basement and I had discovered all of the older grandkids' Christmas presents. Yeah. And it gets, and it, get this, this is so 80s. It was a scooter. <laughs> Not these little Razor scooters you see now, like, you know, you could fold up and stick in your back pocket, okay? These were real 80s scooters. The wheels were like this big, right? They were inflatable tubes. In fact, later that night when we went home, uh, all the grandkids went to bed and about one in the morning, all of the inner tubes popped. They overfilled them. How'd you like to wake up Christmas morning in that? Pop, 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 pop. Anyways, I discovered these scooters. And how many of you know when you find something that's good, you gotta share it, right? <laughs> so I went to all my older cousins, as many as, as, as I could, beforehand. I said, guys, you're not gonna believe this. We're getting scooters. And they're like, yes. Oh, scooters, this is gonna be so much fun. And, and you know, we're going back and forth. And finally, it comes time for the evening where we get to get the big present. And I want to show you this clip, this home video, because it's on tape. And I just want you to watch all of the older kids' faces, because every single one of them knows what's coming around the corner. They all, all of us had to practice the fake Christmas smile. And I'll just let you watch it and let you see. There's me. See the slight glances we're looking at each other. <laughs> I can't even pretend to do it. <laughs> I just got to say one thing. Liars. We're all liars. Every single one of them. I don't even know if we actually ever told them to this day. So they might just be finding out this morning for the first time. Merry Christmas. <laughs> right. But, but, but then, you know, the night doesn't end there, right? You, the kids are playing with the toys. We eat more food, right? We hang out. We watch movies, Elf, you know. We have a good time, I was wondering this. If an alien, if a foreign person that has no idea what Christmas is was to visit my family, and I sat him down and I said, I want you to watch this home video of our Christmas 1987. See, for me, I label that Christmas Scooter Christmas. <laughs> Anyone else do that too? It was so fun. It was so exciting. And if I said, I want you to sit down and watch Scooter Christmas, uh, I want you to tell me afterwards what you think this holiday Christmas is all about. And he may finish the video and he may say, well, um, Christmas must be about what? Scooters. Yeah, obviously, that'd be the first thing, right? I mean, you guys were excited. That was a big deal, big gift. I'd say, no, that's not it. Well, it must be about family then, right? Like family gathering. Well, no, that's not. Presence, is it just presence in general? Is it singing songs? Is it watching Christmas, these, these holiday movies? No, it's not. That. You mean that little story that he shared in that little time there 
about a baby? That's what this holiday is about? And I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes, Pastor Terry hit it on the head last week, sometimes the making of Christmas sometimes trumps and overshadows the meaning of Christmas. Do you know what I'm talking about? And this isn't new in our culture. Like, this happens all the time, right? Um, how many of you know this song, right? <clears throat> London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. All right, I'll stop you there, okay? <laughs> um, we've all sung these nursery rhymes before. How many of you know what London Bridges is about, though? <laughs> London Bridge is falling down. It's about a war. In fact, there's one rumor that it's an ancient song that goes even back to when they would build bridges and they believed in this myth that if you sacrificed a child and put them in the base of the bridge, that the, the bridge would have a good omen. Sing that to your kid next time, right? Right, but we do. Uh, ring around the rosy. <laughs> Who knows what that's about? The Black Plague, right? And we're singing it as a nursery. Do you see how sometimes the context of something gets lost with just the traditions and, and, and the things over time that just build upon it? And, and, and I think this is what Christmas in many ways has become to us. Look at, look at this image. Like, Doesn't this picture kind of define how we look at Christmas now? You know, you, you're... All of this is weird. It's just like, how many of you have had a baby before? Does a baby look like that when it comes out? G glowing light, <laughs> all clean. No, it looks like a lizard covered in slime, right? But here it's beautiful. And Mary and the father, they're, they're looking over, you know, you got all the animals are behaving. You got Jethro Toll over there playing the flute. I don't know what he's even doing there. And then I think there's a dog over there. I don't, why is it? Hello, is this how we tend to picture it? This is the narrative. This is the images. And I get it over time. We clean it up. We shine it up. But I want to look at the Christmas story in a different context. I want to take you back to that time. See, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, he starts off the Christmas narrative, and this is what he says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, why does Matthew start off Jesus' story by saying this? In the days of Herod the king. What he's doing is he's giving us context for the days that Jesus was born in. In the days of Herod the king. If I were to tell you, uh, talk about terrorism in the days of George W. Bush. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You would totally know and understand when I talk about terrorism in that context. In the days of Herod the King. So I want to unpack this guy. This guy that we know and Matthew actually claims to be a king. Was he actually a king? I didn't think he was a king. I thought Caesar was king. <laughs> so why does Matthew even label him a king? Why does he even say just Herod? Well, let's unpack this a bit and let's find out a little bit more about this Herod because I believe it'll lay the groundwork for why Jesus was born, not just in his time, but even how he was born. So I want to take you first to Herod's timeline. 130 BC, Antipater I converts to Judaism under the threat of punishment of death. 
And as he does this, he actually becomes governor of Idumea. Now you say, where's Idumea? Idumea, if this is the Middle East, zoomed in, you see Jerusalem here, Mediterranean Sea here. This would be in the south, the kingdom of Edom, okay? And this is where we find Herod's story begins, Antipater I. Now we don't know what time, but uh, Antipater II, such a creative name, <laughs> this is Herod's father, he succeeds his father as governor over Idumea. Then in 73 BC, Herod, we know him as Herod the Great, is born to Antipater II and Kypros, his wife. Then in 63 BC, Pompey conquers Israel for Rome. So you gotta remember, Rome is expanding at this time. And so how do you rule a, 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 a whole world from one spot? Well, you set up kings. You set up governors in these places. And so they send down and conquer Israel for Rome, Pompey does. And Antipater II actually supports this. Now this would have been a huge deal to the Jewish people. They did not like Rome. They knew what Rome was about. It was about destruct. Oh yeah, your peace, Rome, <laughs> comes with blood <laughs> and sweat. And we don't like it. So the fact that Antipater II, Herod's father, was in support of it, lays some interesting groundwork. Then in 47 BC, Julius Caesar, who's not actually Julius Caesar at this time, he's still Octavian. He appoints Antipater II as governor of Judea. So he gives him more of the northern kingdom. He's not in the south anymore, which gives him more influence. This is a highly uh, 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 sought after piece of land, not just for trade, but so much more. So then Antipater II, he wants to get his kids involved in leadership, right? He says, I wanna, I wanna bring them in. And he appoints Herod, one of his sons, as governor of the Galilee area. Once again, he's getting more and more influence. Then in 41 BC, how many of you remember Mark Antony? Right, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Octavian, that whole, that whole deal. Well, Mark, Mark Antony elevates Herod's power in the Galilee, all right? Actually, uh, Herod sides with Mark Antony, which would have been against Caesar, but we'll find out what later what happens to that. And then in 40 BC, the big thing happens. The Parthians invade Jerusalem and Herod flees to Rome. So everyone knew, Rome knew about the Parthians. No one liked them. They came from the east and they came in and invaded and just annihilated all of those that were standing in the Middle East area. Took control of Jerusalem and a guy by the name of Antigonus, is placed as a governor, as a ruler. He's a Jewish person that lives in the land, so this is what the Parthians would do. So they'd establish someone that was within them to rule, but was ruling for the Parthians. So he sets up camp in Jerusalem and calls Herod down. He says, Herod, I'd like to meet with you. I wanna see what you're all about. So he comes down and he says, Herod, look at this kingdom. Look at what the Parthians are doing. Would you join us? Would you sit under me? And Herod says... I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I want to be the guy. I want to be the man. And so later that night, under the cover of dark, Herod and his entourage, several hundred, flee south out of Jerusalem. Uh, Antigonus and his uh, army find out later and begin to chase them. About eight miles south of Jerusalem, Herod's mother, Kypris, her chariot flips and she dies. And Herod is so broken. 
Herod is so upset that he literally contemplates suicide. Can anyone say mama's boy? (laughs) He doesn't. The Parthians catch up to him. Both armies clash, and Herod makes it out by this hair of his chinny chin chin. (laughs) And he survives. And he walks away from this feeling like, I'm the chosen one. I'm the one that the heavens have given to rule over the Jews. And so he beelines it to Rome and he tells them the whole story, what's going on. And Caesar, Caesar at the time says, listen, Herod, if you'll do this, if you'll take an army down, take the best of Rome, and if you'll take up and, and go to arms and conquer for Rome, I will place you in Jerusalem as the king of the Jews. So Herod takes an army and he marches down and it is a bloodbath. And he marches north to south and he conquers and takes it all for the government of Rome, all for Caesar himself. And he's done. And the question is, well, what do I do now? All the enemies are vanquished. How do I make a name for myself? So he begins in a set of building projects, some that the world has never, ever seen before. And I wanna take you to a couple of these spots because I think it'll lay out a little bit more about what this guy named Herod is about. So the first place I wanna take you is a place called Masada. How many of you have been to Masada before? Yes, how many of you have heard of Masada before? Lots of people, okay, good amount of people. If you go on the, the Israel trip, you'll actually visit Masada here. Uh, Masada is a 1,300-foot mountain north near the Dead Sea. You say, why is this important? Because Herod built a palace, a fortress on the top of this mountain. Now, you may say, why does he build a, por- a fortress on top of a mountain? Because Herod wasn't dumb. He knew the Jews hated him. Right, So he was very uh, well known for building security and, and palaces and fortresses that would guard him and protect him. And you can't get any more guarded than this. You see this three-level tier that, that comes out. You're 1,300 feet up here. This would be his palace, uh, some, some uh, residence, uh, guest house, a banquet place there. Um, you would see, here's the modern day picture of it now. You can see the snake trail over here where you would uh, go up and down in those days. You could still do that today. It takes about 45 minutes. It is amazing, amazing what he did up here. But there was another reason that, that uh, Herod built on here because of this reason. We find in the scriptures, 1 Samuel 2.1, it's a story, this is a, a narrative about David, the king, and he says, And he, being David, left them with the king of Moab, and they, David's family, stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. The word stronghold in Hebrew is a word called masuda. Everyone say masuda. We translate that word masada. And Herod said this, if the greatest Jewish king in the world lived in hiding on this mountain... I'm gonna live in luxury there. And that's exactly what Herod did. He built things that had never even been discovered. He started uh, mosaics here. You see a lot of these still in place there. He imported, guys, he imported columns from Rome, (laughs) okay? Uh, He brought frescoes up to there. 
Uh, some may say, like, what is this area here? This was his swimming pool. A hundred feet wide, it stretched, all right? Now, the logical question <laughs> to be asked is, how do you have a swimming pool on the top of a mountain, 1,300 feet in the air, in a country that it only rains one or two inches a year? <laughs> well, Herod says, if God didn't make it, I'll do it myself. And 17 miles of aqueduct, 17 miles, sorry, of redirecting the desert, Herod redirected wadis that, that gathered water so that he could funnel water all the way up to this mountain so he could swim. <laughs> Are you getting an idea about what Herod was about. He built um, hot baths here, cold baths in here. He built storage rooms in Masada with, with engineering that we still marvel at. He imported wine, some of the best wine from Italy that you could bring, they found in the storage rooms. Some of the technology and how they stored these, we don't even know how they did it. In the 1960s, they found a fig, a fig fully preserved. <laughs> Someone ate it, and they were okay. 2,000 years this fig has been in, in being preserved, and it was still good. This is what Herod was like. Now I want to take you to another place called Caesarea. Anyone notice uh, anything about this name? Caesar, right? Yes, Herod was a brown noser. <laughs> Yes. Now you may say, how did, how did Herod become friends again with, with uh, Octavian or Julius Caesar if he sided with Mark Antony? This is the brilliance of Herod. As he approached uh, Caesar and he said, Caesar, don't judge me by the friends and allies I make, but how well I kept those allies and friends. Now my allegiance goes to you. And Octavian goes, I like this guy. I think we're going to get along. So he builds Caesarea. Now, Herod wanted a port city. The problem was where he wanted a port city, there was no port city. So what does Herod do? He says, if God didn't make it, well, I'm just going to do it myself. This is an artist's rendering of what Caesarea would have looked like. You have the stadium here, which would have sat 4,000 people. 4,000 people, the acoustics to this day, you can go there and, and experience that. This uh, little palace jutting out here, this would have been Herod's palace, all right? Herod didn't like salt water. <laughs> so when he builds a pool in a port city, what does he do? He brings a freshwater pool to bring and build out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, hello? <laughs> He's got a two-level columns, marble everywhere. One day he's coming into Caesarea and he's looking on the horizon at the city and he says, it's not beautiful enough. And he orders all marble be laid over everything. This was who he was. Uh, you'll see the Hippodrome there. This is the modern day picture of the, uh, of the theater that you can see there. This is an aerial view you can see of the theater. This, is, this would have been where the palace was. Over here was the Hippodrome. Now, this was interesting because they didn't have sports in Israel, right? But, but Herod enjoyed this. He, he liked the sports. And in fact, he found out the 192nd Olympiad had been struggling. 
And so Herod came in and met with those high ups and said, listen, I'll fund the Olympics with my own cash. And he pulled out his own wallet and paid for the Olympics. The problem was no one wants to go to Israel to compete for sports. So what does Herod do? For the first time in history, he says, we're going to give away prizes, not just for first place, but for second and third place. This was how intuitive, how brilliant Herod just was. He, he, he was really incredible, quite the builder too. These are the aqueducts that he built because you don't have fresh water going to this port city. So how do you, how do you bring it in? Well, you build an aqueduct six and a half miles that drops an inch every one-tenth of a mile. And this is still in place today. There's an aerial view of it. This was incredible. You would have, if you go there today, you would marvel at this, at what he has built there. There's the Hippodrome. But the, the crown jewel of Caesarea was its harbor. Um, you'll see over here, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he tells us at one time, you could fit 300 ships in this port. 300 ships. This is a modern day view. You say, Jake, what's all that black stuff down there? That's the port. <laughs> That's the harbor that Herod built. You say, how do you build <laughs> a port, a harbor in the middle of the ocean? Well, you invent and create a concrete that hardens in water. This is Herod. <laughs> do you see what we're working with? Now, if you talk about Herod, you have to talk about the temple because this is one of his greatest features. He was definitely still a heart, at heart, wanted had a complex about Judaism. His parents, uh, if you trace it back, were both Arab, but his heart and, and his desire, he, he really did think in his mind that the heavens had created him, had given him to bring peace to the land, to his Jewish people. So when it came time to talk about the temple and being rebuilt, oh, you know Herod's slogan, go big or go home. <laughs> so here's a modern day mock-up of the city that Jesus would have lived, uh, walked in. Does anyone notice the temple anywhere? <laughs> yeah, it kind of sticks out. It's this giant field right there, right in the middle. You can't miss it. <clears throat> Those little pomegranates at the very, very top, that's about the size of a human being there. They said you can fit at least a little over 25 football fields in the temple. You see, when Herod went to go build it, he laid out his plans and all his builders said, Herod, this is impossible. You can't do it. And what does Herod say? <laughs> if God didn't make a mountain to fit my temple, I'll do it myself. And so he built it. Imagine you take on top of a tiny mountain, a shoebox, and you take the lid off and you put the shoebox on top of a mountain and then you put some arches all around it and fill it in with dirt. Now you have a platform to build whatever you want. And this is what Herod did to build this. Now what makes this unique is every stone that was built, of course you can't build it uh, in a holy place. You can't hear the sound of chiseling. It would be unholy. It would be sacrilegious. So every stone was cut to order outside of the temple area and then brought in. And Herod ordered that each stone be cut 
to be the exact fit of the stone next to it. There was no caulk, no filling ever used in any of these stones, and yet today you can't even fit a piece of paper through those rocks. Here's a picture of one of these stones. This is the largest stone that we know of that Herod used. Just so you get an idea here. That's the beginning. This is the end. It is 40 feet 44 feet long, it is 10 feet high, and about 16 feet deep. It weighs 570 tons, church. Just to give you some context, the largest stone at Giza, 11 tons. Stonehenge, the largest stone, 45 tons. 570 tons, we have no idea how they even got it there. The only thing that we know in modern day that can move a stone like that is shipbuilding equipment. <laughs> this is Herod. Go big or go home. And the last place I want to take you is a place called Herodium. Anyone notice interesting? <laughs> of course. This was Herod's crown jewel. Now, it's built eight miles south of Jerusalem, so you'd head south, you'd run right into it. Herod found a spot, and he said, right here, this place, I want to build the greatest fortress on a mountain. The only problem was, there was no mountain. <laughs> so what does Herod do? He takes a mountain from another place <laughs> and moves it here and builds his own mountain, and his and his fortress on it. Now, the other question is, well, why else? Why this spot? Why is this place in particular? Why does he have to build the fortress on this spot? How many of you remember what happened eight miles south of Jerusalem? Herod's mom, her cart flipped. She died, and he almost committed suicide and had a battle where he almost lost his life. But he walked away from that, feeling like God had chosen him that he was gonna make a name for himself. So that's why Herod said, on this spot, I will build a mountain and the greatest fortress the world has ever seen. This is lower Herodium. You could see this pool. It would have been nine feet deep. They didn't even know how to swim. He had a gazebo in the middle there. Um, the mountain, if you go in there today, you can view this from Jerusalem, okay? In fact, um, Jesus says at one time, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to get up and move. Hello? Where do you think he was looking? Right here, church. This was Herod's crown jewel. This is what he, 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 he loved. Um, they, the greatest historian on Herod tells us that Herod spent 90% of his time at this place. 90% of his time. This was where he, this, in fact, this is where you can find his, his grave, uh, his uh, stone. Um, you can see Julius Caesar, what he, he describes Herod as. <laughs> I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. He was ruthless. Uh, he had uh, 10 wives, 15 kids. Uh, two of his sons he was gonna elevate into leadership, but then became very suspicious of them. So what do you do? You execute him. <laughs> That's what you do. Uh, Miriam, his wife, whom he, he loved the most, 
Um, she, uh, he was going on a, a trip and he told all his guards, if I die while I'm away, I want you to execute her because I can't handle the thought of her being with another man. Well, the guards end up telling her and uh, of course she's a little awkward now around him <laughs> as you should be. And so when he comes back and feels this distance, what does Herod do anyways? He executes her. Miriam's uh, brother wanted to be a high priest and Herod elevated him into a high priest role but then later regretted it. And the very next day, he accidentally drowned <laughs> in a pool. <laughs> this was Herod, okay? His, his own kids feared him. His, uh, the, the Jewish people, you know, he went on to build so many of these great things that we look back on history about, uh, with, and marvel at as, as modern uh, marvels. But how do you know, how is this built? With money, right? And how do you get that? Taxes, lots and lots of tax. He was ruthless when it came to this. Herod wasn't dumb. He knew that when he died, no one would mourn for him. So you know what he does? He orders 2,000 of the most honorable men in Israel to be captured and to be locked up in his fortress in Jericho. And when he died, he ordered that all 2,000 of these noble men would be executed so that he would guarantee on his death that there would be mourning in Israel. This was Herod, the king. And so when we read the story of the narrative of Jesus, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, do you get a little better idea of what this was like? Now, what's interesting, church, is I wanna tell you about this other king here. <laughs> he wasn't born in some noble family. He was born in a barn how many of you grew up and your parents said, were you born in a barn? <laughs> Jesus can actually say, yeah, I was, mom. <laughs> he was born in a barn. There wasn't a hundred you know, midwives. There were animals, probably the smell of feces. This is where the creator of the universe decided to enter in, into the most vulnerable position in our world, a baby. A baby. Bethlehem is located 2.1 miles away from the Herodium. That means that the king of the universe was born in a barn literally in the shadows of the great King Herod. Uh, wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who had been born king of the Jews? King of the Jews? I thought we were talking to the king of the Jews. Hello? Okay. Uh, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod and uh, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why is he troubled? Yes. Yes, do you see why Herod would have no qualms whatsoever ordering the destruction of all the babies in town? Hello? Of course you see this. He sees wise men, which we always think there's three wise, there's no, there was no three wise men. In fact, the company probably would have been with full entourage, 60 to 100 people. 
They came from the east. They were Gentiles. They were very, uh, very wise. They were very uh, sought after. They were very high up in, in esteem. And, and they came from the place where the Parthians came. Hello? Parthians were the ones that took and defeated them first. So you can see why Herod would see this and see a threat immediately. Uh, a king, a king is coming. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. Hey, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. What a scene that must have been. But not the scene you would expect. Do you see how the disciples and, and so many of the Jewish people could mis, misunderstand the, the Messiah, the king coming? This was the king, Herod, that they have known. Do you see how they thought he would come in a military form, in a political form, with force, maybe blood? Jesus didn't. He came as a servant. He was found with prostitutes and tax collectors. He would wash his disciples' feet. He would take the lowly place any chance he got just so he could serve. This was the creator of the universe. I want to show you something, connect the dots, and then we'll wrap it up here. Abraham, all the way back in Genesis, before any of this is laid out, Abraham is given a promise as the Jewish people, I'll be your reward. I'll be your shield. And Abraham says, yes, okay, how will I know this? And God says, I need you to go get these animals. Kind of a weird request, right? But he comes back and Abraham, without any instruction, cuts the animals in half. And he lays him down on the side. Why does he do this? Because he knows exactly what is happening. Us in the West, we don't know because we don't really talk a lot about a, a blood covenant. But this was known as the blood path. And this is what it would, how it would work. Uh, two parties would come together. Let's say a husband who wanted to marry uh, a dad's daughter and he would approach dad and say, I want to make a covenant. I will take care of your daughter for the rest of her life. And this is my promise to you. And the father would say, my promise to you is to provide a woman who is pure, who's a virgin, and, and will be uh, committed to you. This is my deal of the bargain. And so what would happen is the lesser party would start. They would put on a, a white robe. And this is what the image would have looked like, this is an artist's rendering of it. Do you see kind of how that works? So the blood from the animals would, would drip down into a path and that lesser party would take a step in their bare feet and they would walk through the blood path. 
And as they're walking through it and the blood sinks through and seeps through their toes, what they're saying to that other person is if I do not fulfill my part of the covenant, then you can do to me what we did to these animals. And then the second party would put on a white robe and he would walk through the blood path. And by him doing so, he was saying, I make a promise to you that if I break my covenant and I do not fulfill what I say I will fulfill, then you may do to me what we do to these animals. It says that that night, Adam, or sorry, Abram, begins to sit and a great fear and dread comes upon him, it says. Why? Because I think in that moment, Abraham realized, oh my word, the minute I step foot in that blood, I know I'm not gonna fulfill my end of the deal. There's no way I'm go- I can remain obedient. And the moment I touch that blood, I'm executing myself. It's the end for me. And so it says a great dread comes over him. And he's contemplating this. Remember it says uh, birds come and, and, and to the carcasses, right? This is how long he's thinking about this. He's pondering this. Man, I can't do this. God wants me to do this. There's no way I could pay for that. And then it says later that night, a smoking pot and a fiery flame passed through the blood path. What does smoke and fire represent in the scriptures? God's presence. Remember, he led them by fire, by day, and cloud by night. Hello? Or the vice versa. Abram saw the most incredible thing because the first thing that passes by is a pot, and now it's his turn. But instead of him stepping in that, a fire torch walks through it. And by God doing that, this is what he was saying to Abraham, that I know you're not gonna fulfill your end of the deal. I know that. So I will step through the blood. I will make the covenant that if you break your promise, then I will pay the penalty. This is 400 years prior to the enslavement in Egypt. 400 years before Jesus is born, we call the silent years. The years God was silent. We have no scripture, no words that came from God. And on the end of that, God comes in the form of a baby, a vulnerable baby, and he serves mankind and he loves them. And at the very end of his life, He walks through the blood path, but it's not a path, it's a cross, and he bleeds his own blood. Why would a creator of the universe who don't need anything, why would he do this for you? Why would he come into the context of this great King Herod? Why wouldn't he come as that? Why would he come to die? Because of you. Because he loves you because he's been willing to be misunderstood for thousands of years so that you could hear a loving father say, I'd go to heaven and back for you. This is the king we worship. This is the king 
we celebrate. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through something tough. I want to ask you a question because Matthew poses it in the book of Matthew. Right when he says King Herod, he poses this question to the Jewish reader, who is the true king? And I want to ask you today, which king do you serve? Is it about building great things and making a name for yourself? About collecting all these things? Living as great as you can? Or is it living in the form of a servant? Is that the king that you worship today? How many of you knew here today half of the stuff I told you about Herod? Not a lot of us. Not a lot of us. How many of you have heard of the king of kings, Jesus Christ? How many of you are here today because of that? And in the shadow of what the world says is great, Jesus says, I'll tell you what's greater. I'll tell you what's greater. I'm here. The greatest gift that we could ever get, church, is when God said, I send my son, and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means this, God with us. He wants to be with you. Why would he crawl down into this lowly place that we call earth in his heavenly form and take the form of a man to serve and sweat and bleed for you so he could be with you? And he's there this holiday season. I want to encourage you. I know it's crazy. I know the times are busy. I know we've got family and scooter Christmases to have. I know that's all happening. But can we find just moments in our day Maybe when the celebration is happening where we can open maybe the bathroom door and just get on our knees just for a second and just say, God, I'm sorry I'm so busy now and this, this, it's just crazy now. And, and I just want to say I love you. And I just want to say thank you for sending your son. Can we take these moments during the day to thank the one true God for what he did? Because it's not all the shiny nativity scenes that we see. It was a step from heaven to earth. And it was ugly when it came down. And it was ugly when he died. But he did it for you. And he did it for me. And there's no greater gift we could ever get, church. Would you bow your heads? God, maybe there's individuals here who feel... Like you've been silent for so long. Maybe they've come here today with an expectation of, God, this is the last chance I'm giving you. God, I pray that you would speak to that person. No, 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 don't even speak to them. Just wrap them up in your arms, Holy Spirit. Let them feel an overwhelming sense of love today. Let them know, God, that just because you're silent, it doesn't mean that you're not at work. God, you gave us the greatest gift in Jesus Christ. And we embrace it to this holiday season. May we not forget the true meaning of it. We thank you. In your name we pray. Everyone said amen. amen. Can we give God a praise today? Was this good? Did this connect? Good. Good. Well.
First five is, is going to be available. If this is your first time, please, I'd love to meet you. Check you out uh, there. Um, other than that, church, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May this holiday season be full of cheer and happiness. But more importantly, may it be full of Jesus Christ. We love you guys. We'll see you next week.